Hi, and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast focused on Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, my guest is Eric Voskill, lead developer of Libitcoin and author of Crypto Economics. Here's the interview. Eric, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Eric, I know you know you've um, got a following, and you've got you're the, you're the lead developer of Libitcoin, and you're also uh, the author of Crypto Economics, which is like a wiki page or GitHub page rather attached to um, the Libitcoin. Uh, but uh, perhaps you want to just uh, give a little bit of a background on yourself, just for the listeners, just for the, those listeners who aren't familiar with you. Sure. Um, yeah, I've, I've been leading the Libitcoin, uh, I don't say leading, but um, I've kind of the, have been the primary contributor, the main, uh, largest single contributor for uh, uh, three years or so now. I've been working on the project for about five years. Um, I, uh, I started uh, when I was working, I started working on Bitcoin about five years ago and was working on a hardware wallet. And I used, uh, I found the Bitcoin. I went out and met Amir and decided this is the software stack I wanted to use uh, to build on. And um, I ended up putting the wallet on the shelf after about a year of um, R&D and um, uh, decided to continue uh, working on the Bitcoin. <clears throat> um, the, uh, the writing I've done has largely been a consequence of um, figuring things out. Uh, in the last couple of years, I started writing uh, just so I have to stop, you know, tweeting everything out uh, repeatedly that I that I had learned. And um, it's grown. It's over 70 topics now. And uh, it's hidden nicely in the Bitcoin system repo where nobody can find it. Uh, but people keep finding it anyway. So, um, yeah, it's uh, um, some of it seems to be pretty straightforward. None of it. Other, other things. Uh, cause people to wonder what I'm thinking. So um, maybe we'll have some interesting discussion over it. Um, as far as my, my background, um, I, I got a CS, a computer science degree uh, at Rensselaer uh, in 89 and joined the Navy because I was bored at IBM uh, when I was uh, an intern there and uh, did 10 years in the Navy. I, I flew, um, did two, two cruises on the aircraft carrier. and uh, But I was programming the whole time. Uh, did some stuff from the Navy that I think they still use. And in 98, I left the Navy uh, to create a startup company and um, ended up selling that one to Microsoft, which is why I live in Seattle. I did two and a half years there as a um, software architect in their Windows division. And uh, I left them to join the spit out of my original company. And um, that's still out there. I, I don't own any more of it anymore, but it's called Beyond Trust. Um, I did a third company that uh, failed, and the day I closed that, finished closing that up, I, uh, I read the Forbes magazine article by Andy Greenberg on the Silk Road, and um, because of my background, I immediately went to uh, the Bitcoin white paper, read it, and I've been working on the Bitcoin uh, on Bitcoin ever since. Um, so I it, back in the '90s, I had a, I had a I, I, I was a card carrying member of the Libertarian Party for about 22, 25 years or so. And that was kind of when I was getting started, and I was very interested in PGP and Digicash. Um, and after that, uh, Digicash kind of folded up. I, I, I really kind of ignored um, digital money stuff uh, for a long time. And um, had I not picked up that article, I don't know when I would have actually taken a look at uh, at Bitcoin. But that was fortunate. I later met Andy um, and uh, um, read his book, and uh, great guy. So. Um, I've I, I've done a lot of other things. I travel a lot. I speak now and write uh, on on Bitcoin. Uh, I do a lot of meetups, and podcasts. Um, so it's kind of taking time away from my development effort, but uh, I still work. Consider myself working full time on the Bitcoin, um, and I do it. I, I'm kind of semi retired, so I, I do this um, on my own. Fantastic! Yeah, that's excellent. I, and I think um, it's to me it's interesting because obviously it's different speaking with you. Even if we're, you know, speaking through like Skype or Google Hangouts, um, because I'll be honest, right? There are times when I'm when I'm interacting with you on Twitter or sort of I see what you've written. It sort of comes off. I I think it's easier to kind of understand someone's point of view when you're actually speaking to them. So uh, there are times when I'm sort of reading um, crypto economics, your uh, GitHub pages on the Libitcoin, or I'm seeing your Twitter perspectives, and to me, it sort of comes off sort of literalist or certain uh, like very um kind of precise 
I suppose. And I can understand, like, you know, again, from a software development background, you have to be precise. I can sort of appreciate that. But then on the other hand, I can also see a perspective of there are certain colloquial terms that we might use in and around Bitcoin. And you you, you sort of take a more kind of literal interpretation of them. So quick example might be uh, when, you know, people might say things like, oh, the ability to so-called audit the supply of Bitcoin, right? So, and I suppose that was an area where, you know, what what's your sort of views there? Well, um, yes, I, I, I completely agree with your with your uh, perspective on my writing. Uh, it's it's a personal style. Uh, I do it for a reason. Um, I, I I think I even tend to talk that way, but I'm not always like that. It's just uh, uh, to me, it's about precision. It's about um, conveying the intended meaning. Um, words take on different meanings, multiple meanings, conflicting meanings. You can have a system of words like the system we use in Bitcoin, um, where you end up with direct contradictions in the in the use of the words. Right? You end up you end up uh, looking at this and looking at that and going, "Well, that doesn't make sense. There must be a different interpretation of this word." So I, uh, when I started writing, I, I I started linking to my own glossary and I put the most brief definitions I could possibly write, right? Uh, what I consider formal <clears throat> uh, in the glossary, so that people would know what I meant when I used a given word. Um, so I've tried very hard not to redefine existing terms unless they're contradictory or amb- ambiguous um, or just unclear. Uh, and so, uh, and in some cases I have had to kind of refine for my own use um, an existing common use term. Um, but for the most part, I don't, if there's a new concept I, I use a different word, right? Um, if, it, but what happens is I tend to be more uh, strict about my interpretation of economic terms, and I use economic terms. I don't use financial terms. So, for example, if somebody says invest in Bitcoin, I say you're buying Bitcoin and you're speculating. That's not an investment, not from an economic perspective. That's not my invention. That's 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 strict Austrian, ter- uh, you know, uh, economics terminology, but some people don't know that. So I, I put it in the glossary. So right. it's about precision. Um, in other words, I, I look and, and a lot of the approach I have in my Bitcoin writings comes from, you know, decades of just an interest in economics and reading and, you know, in politics, I have, I have really less or, or no interest in politics at this point, but that's um, part of my economic, you know, understanding. And um, I write in a very similar style that I think Rothbard writes in because I really appreciated his precision and, and brevity, even though, you know, his, his magnum opus is a monster sized book, uh, man, economy and the state. Um, if you read it, uh, you realize he's, he's actually making very short explanations, but being very precise with his terminology. Um, and I found that extremely helpful um, specifically because the Austrian approach to economics is as a proof, right? An, uh, an axiomatic system called praxology. Um, that's not true of other forms of economics. So they tend to use words very loosely because they're not actually doing a logical proof. Um, so when I write, I, I try very clear, clearly to um, <coughs> avoid opinions. Um, I try to write uh, kind of an informal proof um, but a rigorous informal proof of what I'm saying. Um, anyway, so that's why it sounds very different because it's more mathematical, you know, in terms of proof, logical, than it is just an explanation or, um, you know, just blogging about something. Right. Okay. Yeah. And uh, while we're on that topic, I think um, the listeners would probably like to hear more about who are some of your influences. So obviously you mentioned Rothbard. Who, like economically, who would you c- cite as your influences? Well, um, you know, the Austrian school is the only thing I, I have any interest in. It took me a long time to kind of understand this stuff. It's kind of like investing, right? If you don't do it, you don't really understand it. It takes a while. And that took me a while. Um, but uh, the same thing with economics. It kind of drifted around for a while. I found some stuff. It was wrapped up in my political uh, um, approach and kind of it ended up reversing. My political approach became a consequence of my economic uh, understanding. So, um, you know, I, I use Rothbard as a reference um, most of the time because uh, he's, he writes so clearly. And uh, anything you ever wanted to reference from an economic perspective is in man economy of the state. So I tend to use that as the, uh, as the basis. 
Um, but I don't use use him as an authority. I make my own explanations, and if people want to learn more than I want to talk about, I'll, I'll send them over there. But um, <clears throat> I really try to avoid um, just saying, "Well, no, this is what the Austrians say." You know, that's that's really irrelevant. It's it's what I can prove. So um, he he was a big influence. That that book kind of changed me from kind of a, uh, a libertarian to an anarchist. Actually, I just decided it was. It, I, I understood the contradiction in libertarianism, but it wasn't until a kind of more complete um, economic understanding that I was comfortable saying, well, no, I'm just, I'm just an anarchist. Right? Um, so, uh, but you know, the long line of, of kind of classical economists um, and including the Austrian school and kind of ending with Rothbard is, is uh, been my main influences economically and politically. <clears throat> Excellent. Yeah. So I think, um, Look, I think then essentially you and I have very similar views then both coming from that Austrian economics informed libertarian anarcho-capitalist vision, right? Um, but I think maybe one of the areas that maybe we might disagree is around credit expansion. So do you want to go into that around, and I think some of this comes up in this, and also listeners, um, you might be interested to check out, there was an earlier discussion on the World Crypto Net with Max Hillebrand as the host and Eric, you are one of the guests, and also uh, Fernando Ulrich and uh, Matthew Mazinski and also Nick Carter were on that. Um, and so, Eric, did you want to outline some of your thoughts around, you know, fractional reserve banking in a free market sense versus full reserve Austrian views? Sure. Uh, um, so, yeah, it was a, it was a great podcast. I, I recommend it. Um get a couple hours of talking about this subject on there. I'll keep it brief <coughs> if I can. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so uh, I think I, so I will assume that the reason we made, you, know, you, you may see our, our uh, beliefs uh, or understanding of, of this question differently is because this is the one question that Rothbard equivocates on in man economy of the state. I, I can't think of any other. And I read that book very closely more than once. Um, and what he what he does is he 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 talks about um, you know the banking system without initially being very clear about whether it's a state system or whether it's a free system. <clears throat> and to me, there's a very bright line between that, right? So there's no gray area. It's not like a corporate system and then the state that influences it or anything like that. It's either it's either controlled by the state or it's not. Uh, and so he talks kind of in this area of um, about it, and then comes back and says, well if you make a distinction between state banking and free banking, this may be different, right? And that's the equivocation, right? And so maybe people gloss over that. Maybe it's not picked up in all writings about this. Certainly other Austrians um, don't make that equivocation, but remember Rothbard's rigorous. If he couldn't prove it, he was uncomfortable and he couldn't prove it, right? What he was saying um, to me um, was giving, giving a little bit of credit to, to others in the school while not fully endorsing it. And um, I've looked at it, you know, every way I can. And to me, it's just, um, it's a nonsensical idea that's put forth that credit expansion is some sort of bad thing that's just caused by banking in general. And, you know, bad is a word that would have to be more clearly defined. But um, as, an, as an anarchist, you know, libertarian type and, a, uh, and an Austrian, um, to me, that the line between good and bad is aggression. I, I adhere to the non-aggression principle. And so, um, you know, if, if people do it voluntarily, it's by definition good. Therefore, the objective of, of a free society or somebody who wants a free society is to remove aggression so people can do what they want. It's not to build great monuments, fancy artwork, increase the GDP, you know, increase people's standard of living. It's to, for them to make the choices that they want to make. So um, that's what I mean when I say good. Okay, so we're bad. So the, the question is, fractional banking. Is it good or bad? Should we allow it? Should we not allow it? What does it have to do with the state? Um, so free banking is just a natural consequence of people interacting freely, right? So inherently good. <laughs> There's nothing bad about it because it's the consequence of people doing what they want voluntarily, trading. Um, state banking is, like everything the state does, is a form of taxation or control to achieve tax revenues. So very different, right? So credit expansion uh, is one of these things that, well, you know, when the state intervenes in markets, markets still exist. The concepts still exist. Credit expansion is a natural consequence 
of credit, right? Um, and it exists in a free market. And if there wasn't any, there'd be no products, none, right? Because there'd be no capital used for production. Even if you're lending it to yourself, right? You're taking some savings and you're, you're going to start this project, call it a company, whatever, right? You're going to invest that capital in production. If there's no capital to be invested in production for future earnings, there's no products, right? Which means everybody starves to death or, you know, hunts and gathers uh, and eats as they walk, you know, through the forest. But that's about it. So um, credit is essential, right? And by credit, again, I speak economically, not in a regulatory sense or a financial sense, um, credit, some people would interpret as lending uh, as in a debt contract, right? A loan. Credit is not just a loan. It also includes um, what we consider an equity investment. You give somebody your money in expectation of future yields. Part, uh, you basically take ownership of a fraction of their company, therefore a fraction of its returns, or if it goes under, a fraction of its assets when it's liquidated. Those are both true of both both types of investment. The distinction in those types of investment is purely regulatory. Um, so in financial terms, people will use, use them as, as very distinct, but that's not what I mean. When I talk about credit, I mean people lending other people money so they can produce things and they take a, they basically become part owner in the company. Got it. Okay. So let me try and um, articulate. I think my understanding is slightly different to yours, Eric. So let me just try and articulate that and we can sort of try and understand uh, where that difference lies. So my understanding of it is more like you can still have credit in a full reserve world. It's just that you would need to, banks would need to, in some sense, partition away, right? So it would be like, okay, Eric, let's say Bank of Stefan, and you put some money with me. And, you know, I say, oh, Eric, this money that you've deposited with me, that's in a demand deposit account. You have access to that at any time. You are not relinquishing control of your hundred dollars or whatever. Right. So but you're a vault. If you, right. You're a vault and yes, I abhorred. Yes. I abhorred my money. Yes. And then banks have another function, which is obviously the investment kind of aspect of it, right? So that's why where let's say, okay, Eric, you're coming to the bank of Stefan and you're putting a hundred dollars with me and it's a six month term deposit. And crucially, you are giving up access to that one hundred dollars for the six months that it is locked away in this term deposit. And that's where the sort of full reserve Austrian view would uh, come from. And another point to add to layer on here is that uh, Mises, in his theory of money and credit, um, which actually, as Guido Holzman has uh, sometimes explained, he's explained that it might be more accurate to term that theory of money and fiduciary media. And what is fiduciary media? That is the amount of credit extended in the economy beyond the amount voluntarily saved. So that's the understanding that I picked up from reading. So obviously Rothbard and also others such as Huerta de Soto in Money, Bank, Credit so, and Economic Cycles. So what's your view? So if we were to interpret so you could just set aside the whole bank as a, as a vault hoarding thing and you just assume you put it, you keep it in your pocket, right? It doesn't really make any difference. We're just talking about the function of banking, which is lending or investing your money so that you can get a return. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. That return might be in the form of free services and nothing else, 0%, but you still do it um, to get that return. <clears throat> Again, otherwise, there's no reason to do it. Uh, in a free banking system, um, and even many times, most time in the non-free banking system, um, people are fully aware that their money is invested and that they have a demand right on that money. But they don't fully have a demand, right? A bank can say, no, we're closed today. We don't have the money. Come back tomorrow, right? But when you get to state banking, they don't do that. They just take some money from the taxpayer, right? So state banking is a very different a very different concept. So let's stick with free banking for a minute. Some Austrians will say, again, I, Rothbard mentions this, that, that you could consider demand withdrawal coincident with um, invested money invested um, deposits, a fraud, right? But a fraud implies that the investor, in other words, the saver, doesn't know about it, right? If they yeah. know about it, it's not a fraud. So um, it's a voluntary contract. It's good. So that's where I fall on that, right? If, you, if you're putting your money with somebody who's investing it and they're telling you, you can get it out as long as we have it whenever you want, right? then they're doing what every company does, right? They're estimating their cash flow requirements, 
They're estimating. No company knows absolutely for sure how much cash they're going to need to satisfy their daily operations. That portion of cash that every company holds, every person, every family holds, is their hoard, right? They, in banking, they call it a reserve, which I think is a, I consider a misnomer. It's a hoard from an economic perspective. It's, it's cash, it's, it's assets or cash that are readily available for liquid, for, for um, consumption, right? Or, or uh, um, purchase of whatever you need at the moment. So, yeah. So the, so, so a hundred percent reserve implies that there is no lending, right? Because let's just think about the word bank. Is it really important that we use this term bank or is anybody who's doing what a bank does also part of this situation? I would argue that's a that's a distinction without a difference. Anybody who takes in money and offers it back on demand and invests it is doing what a bank does. And banks don't only do that. As you said, they have CDs and other other options for people if they want them. Um, so companies do this. You know, you, they may run out of cash flow requirements. And, in, and when they do, they borrow more money or they go broke, right? Their cost of capital goes up as they become in extremis and they become a higher risk. As their cost of capital goes up, it's kind of a death spiral, right? Capital becomes more expensive. They, they're already in extremis. It, things get worse. They load up more debt. And unless they can um, earn their way out of it, they're done. That doesn't happen with state banking because of the lender of last resort function. But without state banking, these banks would be doing the same thing that every company does, which is estimating their cash flow requirements. And if they get in extremis, borrowing from somebody else. And if they, if they are unable to do that going out of business, that would determine that the, the, the needs that they have for, for cash flow would determine their so-called reserve requirement, just like it does for every company. So um, there's re really, if you think about it, um, you know, the, to get rid of the effect, right? So there's the, there's the one, one, one concept is the fraud, right? Well, I've just... I, I dismiss the fraud outright. It's not a fraud yep. if both parties agree, right? Yeah, and on that point, I would probably say I would agree. Like, I think it's I'm one of those people who believe it's not necessarily fraud, right? Like, we could have agreed to that arrangement, but it might still be economically bad in that it drives this economic instability let's, in the cycles. Let's focus on the word bad, economically bad. What do you mean? So, in that sense, I would say that that credit expansion beyond the amount voluntarily saved is what kicks off this malinvestment. And then we see a cluster of entrepreneurial errors, which we perceive, you know, these are the malinvestments. This is the cluster of economic errors. And that's what we saw in the dot-com bubble and the housing bubble and so on. Okay. Well, you, you don't, don't reference state banking because we're talking about housing bubble and et cetera bubble, which um, I think you might recognize uh, are state driven, right? The lender right. of last resort function distorts this whole picture. So again, we're talking about free banking, whether the essence of banking is itself bad somehow. And you use the term bad in the way I described good earlier, people doing what they want. Right? So we disagree on the fundamental principle, and that's, that's the issue to resolve first. Is it bad if people do what they want? Well, okay, there's a bubble. Things get priced more highly than in the future people will be willing to pay, maybe. right? You don't know what people are willing to pay because you can't predict what's in their minds. Prices are not predictable. So, so this, this idea that people make, make decisions that are maybe not beneficial to them in the future is inherent in humanity, right? So we can't make, if you believe in good is people doing what they want with their own stuff, non-aggression principle, then you can't see the consequence of free banking, which in, in your description might result in what you're calling price distortions or bubbles, right? Or the business cycle. You couldn't see that as a bad. You'd see it as natural behavior, right? A consequence of good. Um, so a side effect of good, right? This is how things work. So sometimes, you know, um, people don't estimate the amount of product they need and they, they, they run out, right? But then they, then they catch up. There's all kinds of errors made. Entrepreneurial error is, is a form of speculate. Uh, entrepreneurship is a form of speculation, right? You're, you're, you're gambling your money on a on a 50-50 chance that somebody's going to buy it for what you're willing to able to sell it for in the future, which you don't know, right? So there's always error. Um, and that's, that's a very Austrian perspective, entre entrepreneurial error. Um, what you're talking about is errors being magnified by money flowing in one direction or another as a consequence of lending, right? Well, lending yes. is necessary for money to flow at all, right? For, I, I'm, I'm, 
I'm speaking loosely when I say flow. I'm not velocity of money starts to enter the picture, and that's that's another thing altogether. So when I when I say flow, I just mean one person lending to another. So if a if a if a bank lends, a, say say a company has some money, or you have some money and you want to invest it, you're lending it to somebody else. What do they do with it? They take a certain percentage of it and they hoard it for for current cash flow requirements, and they take the rest and invest it, right? And that goes on and on and on until all capital is always hoarded, right? All capital is hoarded, but it's also invested. This is credit expansion, right? And the amount of expansion is a direct consequence of the interest rate. If the interest rate is zero, if nobody's willing to pay for money, there's no investment. If the if the interest rate is, um, so let me back up. The, What's driving interest rate is time preference, right? People's willingness to surrender their capital now for the expectation of more later. So time preference determines the interest rate, again, speaking economically, and interest rate determines the level of credit expansion, right, D directly. So if you either have no interest and no credit expansion and no products, or you have credit expansion, it's inherent in, in human behavior in, in, in economics. So there will be errors, but we're talking about now errors being magnified, right? And there are reasons that state banking um, hugely magnifies errors because it removes risk from certain sectors of the economy, puts the risk on the taxpayer in exchange for political favor. So when you have the opportunity to make some potentially gross reward, right, some profit, say in the housing sector, which has taken off, and you know it's probably going to explode at some point, but when it does and you run out of capital, you're covered by the taxpayer. That's called the moral hazard, right? So you get the profits when things are going well because you, you, you invest everything legally you possibly can. Of course, you're regulated because otherwise, you know, this moral hazard um, brings everything down. So you have some amount of regulation right. that tries to keep it under control, right? Reserve requirements. Um, but the banks don't care about their reserve requirements. They'd be zero if they're allowed to be because they're not going to lose anything, right? Or they're not, they're going to be covered by this taxpayer. So that is what creates these gross distortions, not people making investment decisions and hoarding some of their capital, right? That's, right. that's necessary. Okay. So let me um, try and try another kind of angle then. So, as you were saying, I think you, you know you. It's a fair point. You say the difference between what would exist in a fully free market, free like in your view, free banking, like fractional free free uh, fractional reserve, but in a free market sense, um, versus what we have now due to the state induced by state interventions, central bank, lender of last resort, ex implicit and explicit bailout guarantees, things like in the US, the FDIC, or in Australia, a similar kind of thing here as well. Um, I I guess the probably the full reserve the full reserve Austrian on this would probably say something like this this whole that whole system of fractional reserve like banking would only be sustainable in a world where we have the government central bank lender of last resort and I think in some of the prior Austrian debates on this uh, some examples that have been raised were even. Uh, during examples of so-called free market, free reserve bank, fractional reserve banking, where uh, specie redemption was blocked, meaning, you know, a person, you know, thought they could have access to their money, but they couldn't. And this was for an extended period of time. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, when you invest your money, you can lose it. And when you put your money into an interest bearing account, what you're doing is you're joining a mutual fund, right? You're, you're buying into a mutual fund. Somebody else is investing your money for you and everybody else is collectively. So if you just switch over to, let's not talk about a bank, let's talk about Vanguard, or mutual fund company, right? Um, I, I use both uh, for different reasons, different services, whatever. We, get to, we start getting into regulatory requirements and features and whatever, but these are economically the same thing if you remove the, the state aspect. The state doesn't insure my Vanguard um, money market, right? Yeah. Vanguard takes that money, invests it, holds on to a certain money. It's a money market. I can take my money out whenever I want. There's only one bank that's broken the buck, you know, in, I mean, sorry, one uh, money market that's broken the buck. If you, I don't know, listeners know what that means, but has failed to maintain um, their net asset value for their money market at $1 per share in the, in the US, for example. 
So, um, and only slightly, only for a very short period of time, right? So, so it's kind of an example of free market banking that happens right now where it works and it's not insured. Um, I don't know what their reserve requirements are, but they're managing their money so they can maintain that demand withdrawal. Okay, but let's set that aside. Let's say it didn't work. It's just not feasible. Okay, so what? <laughs> right? Then people would lock up their money, put them in CDs, and have have a uh, have a time for withdrawal. But let's let's assume let, let's assume we um, we don't know that that's going to work either. I mean, can't we can't we look at that and go, well, geez, after six months, the investments they made might all be bad. You might still lose your money. Right. Oh, yes. There are no guarantees in investments. So we're betting on whether the the bank can properly can properly evaluate its its investments and be able to return your money on time um, or whether it can do the same thing when it's investing um, without a lockup. Right. It's just a time difference. That's all we're talking about. So but we can assume that that it doesn't work. Fine. No problem. Okay, but it's still not an evil. Right. It's not a bad. It just might not work. Well, let it not work. Right. There's a lot of things that don't work in the economy. Many, 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 un- I would say an infinite number of products never get created. Right. And, and there's as an Austrian, as Rothbard uh, said very clearly, the cheapest thing on the planet is ideas. There's no limit to ideas, which may be, may be good, maybe not good. The only limit we have is capital. And without capital, the ideas never become products. So there's all these products that never get made. Maybe fractional banking wouldn't get made. Maybe no banking would get made, but if we didn't do that, there'd be no products at all, right? right. And that, that's what it comes down to. The, the, so when we say credit expansion, what that means is um, the effect of interest. That's all. It's inherent. It's like tautological. Um, if you have lending or capital investment in production, you have credit expansion. It doesn't matter if you call it banks. If you have... Um, Banks that offer demand withdrawal and it doesn't work, then they'll just start, you know, putting limits on your withdrawal ability. And I think you you would see if you look at the fine print, there are limits on people's withdrawal ability. One of them you yeah. just mentioned, right? I, I would assume that that's in the fine print somewhere. People, you know, they got locked up and get, didn't get their money. Maybe it's not, but that's a consequence of failure, which happens. Yeah, I suppose. And then the other point here is not just like a localized failure to that specific bank, but rather obviously economic wide cluster of entrepreneurial errors. And I think that's also the point that the Austrians would make. And I think Huerta de Soto really nails that one in uh, Money, Bank, Credit and Economic Cycles, where he's saying, you know, as Austrians, we have a more of a sophisticated understanding of capital structure and there are different stages. And what he's trying to articulate in that book is he's saying, well, the amount of capital associated for those different stages, so like through different times, so the goods in whatever year three, year five, year seven, whatever, um, they do not align with what actually are the consumer preferences. We don't so know. What the, do you have any thoughts around that? They never align with consumer preferences. If you could predict consumer preferences with perfect accuracy, right, you'd be infinitely rich. Right. That's never the, and that's a very Austrian idea, right? You can't, when you set out to make a product, which takes time, even if you knew exactly what everybody wanted today, which you don't, you certainly don't know what they want two, three, four years down the road. I mean, I've made products that nobody wanted. Okay. The fact that I put a lot of money into them doesn't matter, right? It's irrelevant. They just didn't want them. So they're not worth anything. And that has to happen for people to figure out what people actually want. That's, that's right. risk and risk is a necessary, risk means failure and failure is necessary. So, so I would say, so I would say that's sort of like a bit of an equivocation though, because I think it's more like entrepreneurs will, okay, yeah, every now and again, of course, like in fact, many businesses fail, but I think that's a bit of an equivocation between entrepreneurs failing in general, in the general case versus like induced errors right, well, who by the credit. Uh, well, no, again, credit expansion is necessary. It can't be inducing errors. If it didn't exist, there'd be no opportunity for errors. Credit expansion is a consequence of lending, right? As, again, think think about, I mean, I know um, it, it took me a while to figure this out. I know it's not obvious to everybody. I, I think you get it. But just to highlight for your listeners, um, if if I have some capital that I've saved, I've hoarded, and I lend half to you, and you take it and go, I need half for my daily capital you know, requirement. I need this liquidity. So you hoard that half and you lend half to somebody else and they do it and they do it and they do it, right? Well, on the books, there's a lot more capital out there than my original amount. 
That's called credit expansion. That's a consequence of each person's willingness to lend, right? And that's a consequence of their time preference. And that determines the interest rate, right? So, so credit expansion is absolutely inherent in, in the production cycle. You can't have production without credit expansion. Um, so you, the, the question is, I mean, I think the next question is, okay, if you understand that credit expansion itself can't be done away with, it can't be changed, even if you shut down all the banks, made them all just safe deposit boxes, right? Nothing would change because you'd still have the same rate of lending because of the same time preference, right? So, so unless you, and it can't even be determined what determines people's time preference. That's another inherent Austrian uh, idea that time preference is a preference. It's in each person's mind. Nothing determines it except their mind. We can make, you know, we can make guesses at what determines it, but we can't prove it. So, um, you know, humans are not automatons. Um, so you can't, you, you can't really, there's nothing you can do about credit expansion, right? Um, you can make, you can even make it, and this is actually fairly common, believe it or not, even in the U S you can make it illegal to issue credit, right? There are, right. In the past, it was usually laws and so on. Right. Okay. Well, that just moves the credit market somewhere else, loan sharking, equity, Right, but it's still the credit. It's still credit in the in the in the Austrian sense. You're still lending people mon- money, and people still borrowing. Yeah. In the so what? In, sorry, in, in parts of the in parts of the world, you know, um, all lending is illegal, but it doesn't stop people from lending. They just banks become investors in companies instead of d- creditors to companies. But it's functionally, I mean, it's economically equivalent. They form right. partnerships. So let me. Let me try and uh, explain something else here. So, it, for us, as kind of full reserve Austrians, it's not we're not saying there should not be any credit, right? What we're saying is credit expansion beyond the amount voluntarily saved, right? So that would mean the amount beyond what people have voluntarily put into those, say, those term deposits, um, knowing that there is a risk they won't get it back, right? And then here's another the second point that I'd like you to touch on as well is. The other factor is, uh, you know, in some of your early explanations, you're talking about this idea of lending out and lending out and lending out, right? And that's kind of that fractionalization mm-hmm. of kind of deposits on top of deposits or, you know, so on, as, as, as I think you, you understand. The other component, I think Austrians such as Guido Hulsman or uh, Rothbard, they, they would probably make this point, which is that it's those IOUs, it, the crucial, one crucial factor is all of those IOUs trading at par. Right. And I think if we bring that back to a Bitcoin sense, let's say we kind of lived in some future Bitcoinized world and there would there you know, the question is, would there be a difference between a Bitcoin on chain, like verified, you know, with your node, compared to, you know, these fractionate fractionized um uh say Coinbase is a fractional reserve, whatever, and people would likely not make them they would not trade at par whereas in our current day world with the government and legal tender they can force you to treat their you know aud or usd trading at par so what are your thoughts there okay quick answer bitcoin won't change anything not in that context uh you can lend it therefore it creates credit expansion you can lend it under the same terms as you can lend uh dollars (laughs) so it doesn't change anything you can make it illegal doesn't change anything right it just moves somewhere else so um, all you can do by making it legal is raising the cost of capital and therefore making people poorer. You know, you could become North Korea or, you know, a lot of Middle Eastern states that make it a lot harder to, to borrow capital. People go to loan sharks and, you know, get their kneecaps broken and things like that. But, but you're not going to, you're not going to, um, aside from raising the cost, you're not going to um, do anything. So Bitcoin's not going to do anything because it's, it doesn't have that ability to not be traded, right? Or to not be lent or not be encumbered. Um, uh, on the, on the question of trading at par, you have to realize that what we're talking about in these examples that you're citing is state banking, right? State banking guarantees its lenders, right? So they should trade at par. They're guaranteed. Now, if you go to a company that's, um, um, maybe, maybe an investment company, maybe not one as, as Titanic as, as Vanguard, but, but, you know, somebody who's in, in, is investing money and they will, they go to. They go to borrow money and they use their own um, deposits, uh, 
you know, contracts as collateral. You think that's going to trade at par when they're failing? No, <laughs> right? They're not going to be able right. to borrow against that on a one-to-one -one basis or sell it for, they're going to be steeply discounted, which they are actually even in our state banking system when they're not guaranteed. So th this is just a, a you know, a, not a, a real evaluation of what happens. Um, these these IOUs, as you call it, which is a, it's a fair description, right? This is encumbered money. It's it's the bank doesn't own, bank doesn't own the money that that you gave them. The bank owns a fraction of a company that they lent it to. It's not the same thing. They can account for it as a dollar, you know, invested. That's a dollar on their books because if they lose it, they're going to get it back, right? So okay, fine. <laughs> if they didn't have that guarantee, they would not be able to um, account for it like that, not not uh, rationally, right? Uh, and they don't. So um, yeah, so I, go on. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I had a thought, but I lost it. Yeah. Okay. So one other point I would say, even even in today's world, right? So I'm you know more on the full reserve side, obviously, but there are some fractional reserve Austrians who believe in you know fractional free market, and even in their point of view, they believe that even today banks still have to maintain some level in terms of reputational risk, right? Because if they go too far, then they may not be able to get funding. So in their, like in the current view, in the current world where, you know, banks do this maturity uh, transformation, right? So the typical way banks operate nowadays is that they borrow short and they lend long. So they might uh, issue certain instruments on like a six-month basis or whatever, but then go out on the other side and say, oh, okay, here, Eric, here's a mortgage for a 25-year loan. And that's how they, let, you know, borrow short and lend long. And they do that maturity transformation. Um, but yeah, I, I guess that's uh, it's just anyway, investing. I, I mean, there's different strategies for investing. That's not the only one. And it's certainly not uh, proven to be more effective. Um, it probably relates more to the regulatory requirements than anything. Um, you know, the most effective way to invest is to, is to invest um, long, right? The, because you reduce volatility. Um, but if you have a business requirement that requires you to have cash on hand, you, you, you know, you do things like ladders or, you know, you like stage your investments so you can liquidate them periodically. You don't, you know, not everything's invested for a hundred years, and then then you're going to get your money, while you're also doing demand demand withdrawal. So these things determine how people invest. It depends on your business model, but I would not say that all people who invest invest like that. And I consider all people who invest creating this fractional system. Um, banks again are just a business category um, that deals strictly with investing and follows certain state laws. Vanguard, mm. same exact process from my perspective with my money market, except I know I'm not insured by the state. Um, right. So my my, you know, they do have reputational risk if they start getting ugly. Right, my money and other people's money is going to come out of that because we know the risk is increasing, which increases their cost of capital. All right, um, and if they don't get it under control, they're going to fail. Uh, so right. that's what drives, yeah. and when I say they, it's kind of funny because in the example of Vanguard, it's not they, it's me. The fund holders are the owner of the company. <laughs> so, yeah. so you yeah. know, it's kind of an interesting um, uh, perspective. So, And Vanguard has a very particular structure about it as well. It is actually owner kind of operated yeah. in some sense. And, and they're not, but they're not unique in, in that perspective. I mean, I, I'm also a USAA member and USAA now does full banking and investment services. It used to be just insurance. Um, and you know, they're, they're owned by their, their account holders. I, I wouldn't use a, I wouldn't use an investment vehicle that I didn't own. Um, yeah. okay. I don't. Look, anyway, I, I think, um, you know, I think we've done enough on the, uh, fractional reserve aspect. I had another topic I was really keen to discuss with you as well, just in the time we've got, sure. um, it's around jurisdictional arbitrage, right? And so this is a, a theme that I've often hit on my podcast, but I'm, I'm curious to sort of hear your thoughts as well, because I think, as I kind of read you and listened on um, your prior appearance on the World Crypto Net with Max, it's sort of like you have this almost dystopian view of governments fully cracking down to the maximum level and there not being kind of any other places in the world that might at, in some ways slightly open up to Bitcoin. So can you just outline some of your yeah. views on that? And yeah. I guess the other thing is yeah. just why you are still kind of still doing Bitcoin if you believe that. Well, I don't believe that. So... Um... But that I, that wouldn't stop me from doing Bitcoin. Um, so that that doesn't really. I mean, I know it's not intentional, but it doesn't accurately represent um, 
what I believe in terms of the oh, okay. Go on. arbitrage. It's not that I believe, you know, necessarily all countries will come down and have this massive crackdown and all work together. That's that's actually the, the, the point of the jurisdictional arbitrage fallacy is that's not necessary um, and it doesn't change anything, right? Um, the security model of Bitcoin is based on being able to operate without government permission, which means when the governments, some of them, you know, to different degrees say you can't, you can't accept Bitcoin, that's money laundering. Or you can't mine Bitcoin because that's money laundering, right? You're, you're confirming um, unauthorized transactions. Um, all white market activity in that jurisdiction, by definition, is gone, right? But yeah. as a matter of definition, if it's white market, it's gone. So it becomes black market in that jurisdiction. Now, okay, so we have, say, just take the U.S., for example, or Venezuela, or whoever you want, right? Take some jurisdiction, some sovereign, and say they outlaw outright. Mining and transacting, which are the two aspects of Bitcoin that are Bitcoin, um, are receiving and mining. Those are the people who actually do things in Bitcoin. Um, so that, that, that provide security and that make it function. Um, so if you can't do those things legally, you're doing them illegally, which means in that country, you've got a black market or you just don't have any Bitcoin, right? So, so this black market is, what is it doing? It's hiding. It's not the state. And unless it becomes the state, it has to hide. Right. So that's why we have um, lack of identity in Bitcoin. You know, we have a great the greatest anonymity we can achieve. And we um, we also um, adhere to this principle of, or we talk about this principle of decentralization. I say decentralizability, um, but uh, decentralization is nothing more than a tool to achieve anonymity, to hide. Right. It's not about um, anything else. It's if, if you can hide, you can do it. If a lot of people are hiding and doing it, that makes it you know, more resilient, <clears throat> but decentralization itself achieves nothing. Say, you know, businesses around the world are very decentralized and they can't, they can't, you know, do what they want. So anyway, I, I mean, white market businesses. So, so let's, let's now say, for, so I, I've painted a picture of um, a closed white market in a jurisdiction and an operating black market in that jurisdiction. Say there's another jurisdiction, which the state says, fine, you know, we don't care about signage and we don't care about black uh, money laundering. We just want to, you know, poke a finger in the eye of the U.S. And so we're going to we're going to let everybody come here and mine, transact all the Bitcoin they want. Great. That just means they're part of the black market from the perspective of the U.S. There's black market in the U.S. There's black market out of the U.S. Doesn't change anything. Right. The security model remains the same. We would, uh, you know, the U.S. would call that country what? A rogue state. This happens all the time, right? You have a road stake that's trafficking, doing in drugs uh, or you know, selling drugs or, um, you know, allowing, you know, offshore gambling or Liberty Reserve or what have you, right? All these things that, right. that have happened, that do happen, uh, terrorism, whatever, right? So we have these rogue states and now we have a state of war between, you know, whether it's, whether it's outright, uh, uh, drones, bombs, troops, or it's um, embargoes, uh, it's financial embargoes. Those are all acts of war, right? When you prevent people from trading freely, it's an act of war. So, okay, so you have these states at war with each other. Okay, fine. You know, uh, the security model I'm describing is the same. This, the, the state, presumably, if Bitcoin is um, what it purports to be, which I believe it is, will not be able to simply stop its operation in the black market. And I don't believe that it, it's trivial to stop its operation in the white market it, in, in your jurisdiction. So, so, okay. The black market has a certain size and importance. Great. That that's, that's what I'm saying. Well, it, yeah. it, it, if, if, if somebody believes, so this is the difference between what I'm talking about and what, what many people tend to believe they, they believe, well, well, Bitcoin will continue to operate as a white market money. Um, it just won't operate in the states that ban it. Great. That's white market in the state you're in and black market from the perspective of the other state. So this situation continues. This state of war now continues between these states, really between once, you know, the states that have banned it in the states uh, and people that still do it illegally from their perspective. Well, what's the next step for these states that want to stop it? Sometimes they'll send in the troops that, you know, but the easiest way to stop Bitcoin is just to mine it. Right. So the next step would logically be these states that care if they're big enough and powerful enough to just start mining Bitcoin so they can censor it. Right. So what I'm saying is that jurisdictional arbitrage does nothing to prevent that. Nothing. 
right? I mean, it, at best, it allows more people to operate openly if there's no outright war, right? But that's going to happen anyway. People are going to operate covertly anyway. So the question is only, is there is there an ability of the black market from the perspective of the attacker state, right? The state that wants to stop it strong enough to defend itself. That's what matters. And by strong enough, people have really interesting um, ideas about how Bitcoin is strong. Um, if a state operates a 51% attack, some people say, well, they'll never get enough hash power. Nonsense. It's not that expensive. And they'll never get to 50%. No, it's been done. <laughs> and it's been done by private individuals. It's actually profitable to get to 51%. The bigger you are as a miner, the more money you make. All it requires is capital investment. So the state can actually get, and remember, it's anonymous. So nobody can actually know you're doing it. You just get up to 50%. Remember, it's illegal. So nobody's telling anybody who they are. Nobody knows. So, so we're in the situation where the state can profitably get to 50%. And then yeah, I'll start, I'll start uh, um, censoring transactions by executing a 51. I'm just not building on any blocks that, that, that uh, mine uh, unauthorized transactions. So it, it's nonsensical that they can't get the hardware. They could just seize it right now or just go build it. They built a freaking atomic bomb, right? It's, it's not that hard if it's important. And they can profitably get to 50% and they can start censoring. And that will be profitable, right? So the, the, quest, the question then is, what stops that? It's not stopped by these other states, right? Unless they're willing to um, do the same thing, right? Mine, invest their capital and 50, you know, create an opposing 51% attack. But that's, that's what I'm saying. The black market has to, has to raise has to raise more hash power than the attacker. And the question becomes, where does that money come from, right? The, the, when the attacker censors, the attacker loses money on transactions that they're, that they're not accepting because those transaction fees will rise because they're not getting confirmed. So as those fees rise, more hash power is incented in the black market miners. And so they increase their hash rate until the point where they're now a greater hash rate than they, they can be, not necessarily, but they can rise to the point where they're a greater hash rate than the sensor. Now the sensor is losing money, right? Because they're not accepting the higher value transactions. So what do they do? They have to subsidize their mining operation, increase hash rate without increasing revenues. That means taxes have to go into the, the attack now. They're losing money. So you have a conflict between the state and the black market, the censoring states and the black market, which could be other states included, where one side is raising tax money to stop this thing, and the other side may be contributing tax money, just donating it to the cause, or the free market is simply paying high enough fees to get their transactions confirmed. It's not knowable who's willing to pay more money, right? But at least it's economically rational to think that people will increase their fees if, if the transactions are important enough. And it's also economically rational to, to understand that they may not value it highly enough, and they may not, and the state may win. So it's not knowable whether Bitcoin is secure, like absolutely, against such a threat. But the point of the jurisdictional arbitrage fallacy, as I've written it, is that it doesn't change anything, right? It's not politically, Bitcoin is not a politically secured money. If it was, it would be no better than any other money. Right. Okay. So let me just throw a few uh, interesting discussion, Eric, and let me just throw probably what most Bitcoin, like hardcore, what I'm going to call hardcore Bitcoiners would think uh, a couple points that they would say. So they would probably say uh, there's a chance of losing money, right? So the state may not, there's a chance the state would not successfully execute that attack, Uh Reasons being people could fork, all right? Um, there could be, you know, they might not be um, careful enough and the knowledge of them doing an attack might leak. Someone might try something else. And I suppose the other comp one that you mentioned also is just this idea of competition between countries, right? What if multiple states were trying to, um, they weren't coordinating amongst each other, but they were both trying to yeah, do I, their I've own Bitcoin that, mining. I've addressed that already, right? All that means okay. is, that, is that states who are not actually transactors here, they're just, they're just wanting to contribute to the cause, are donating tax money, which means the taxpayers are paying to support this money system. That can happen, right? Mm. Um, 
tax is not rational. Well, it's rational from the state's perspective, but when you look at a rational economic perspective, you have to find out where the self-interest is for the individual. How is the individual helping all these black marketeers around the world, right? Mm. And they're helping by paying the fees necessary to get their transactions confirmed, which is perfectly rational. This is something that Satoshi never, I don't think he ever understood because he actually made the case that people, that basically people would have to band together and generate more hash power. Which is basically a charity argument, right? We'll we'll do we'll we'll give in for the good of the of the coin, right? Maybe we have self interest in the coin, but now now it's a uh, commons tragedy, right? I'm going to donate my money to help everybody else. Um, no, economically rational system has to be based on me paying something because I want to because it helps me, um, and it has to be priced, right? I'm not just donating some arbitrary amount of money. So fees are priced, mm. they're helping yourself, and, they're, and, and if you're paying fees that are rising on black market or unauthorized transactions, you are, you are essentially defending the money against, against that attack. That's not to say that another state can't donate to the cause, but it's not, from an individual perspective, economically rational. States are irrational from an individual perspective, so they can do whatever they want. But this comes down to which state can generate more capital. That's it. I'm not saying that black market states, the rogue states, can't generate more capital in donating to Bitcoin and overpowering the censor. That's not what I'm saying, right? Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. States, states do work together to preserve fiat, and most states, certainly all of the large ones, make a significant amount of revenue off of fiat, right? And off of transaction transparency, which allows them to enforce all of their other taxes. So uh, take away transaction transparency, money, you know, make everything money laundered and take away signage revenues. And it's likely that big states will care, right? If nothing is done, that's probably what will happen. So eventually they'll care enough to actually do something. And the first thing they'll do is the simplest and cheapest, which is to make it illegal to use Bitcoin as it is. They'll create FedCoin, make Coinbase and all the other white marketeers either go out of business or accept their new rules, one inflation rule and one censorship rule. One affects miners, one affects merchants. And uh, so I have a topic on that called uh, the FedCoin objectives. Um, you mentioned, um, okay, state won't do this attack because they might lose money. Yeah, they might. They lose money all the time. Okay, that, that's not necessarily a proof of security. However, you mentioned um, a fork. Well, you know, forking your way out of a set of miners is a suicide attack, right? Because you're basically putting the smaller miners out of business, the ones, the ones that are hiding the ones that you want, right? The ones that are willing to take black market transactions because the way mining works is the larger your mine, which means the less hidden it is, um, the more centrally located it is, the more money you make, disproportionately yeah. more money. So the state can operate a large mine and make, I mean, they could, I don't know, just pick a number. Maybe they have 40%, 35% of the hash rate, but they have 50% of the hash power, which means percentage of blocks generated. Right, and I'm just picking a number, but it's just to just to just to demonstrate that it's actually cheaper to be a big miner. And when you when you wipe out all the mining equipment, what happens? Well, I've asked big miners this. They said, "Well, we'll just go retool. I've got capital. I can do this." Right? Smaller miners, they're much more likely to be out of business. Right. So um, because they have a, a thinner margin, they're always going out of business. They're the ones that can't stay in business because they're not earning the same return on capital as the larger miners. So. So what you do is you, you do two things. You, 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 you help the larger miners execute their attack over the long run. And you, um, every time you fork, you, you split the consensus, right? Some people join you, some people don't. Um, and even if they don't knowingly, you're, you're, you're continuing to fragment your economy. And you, you've seen this with altcoins, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So the, the, every time you do this, you get weaker and weaker from an economic. And by the economy, I mean the set of all merchants that accept the coin. That set gets weaker. They're selling less stuff for the coin. There's fewer of them. Um, so it's bad on both sides. It's not a viable strategy. And it's not one that Satoshi ever suggested, not that he's an authority, but just interesting to point out, it's not actually part of the security model described in Bitcoin. It's something that people cooked up because they don't understand how Bitcoin is secured. They can't think of any other reason. Well, I gave them the reason. It's the fee premium that people are going to pay. That's that's where this, the, the free market gets to push out the censor. Um, so, you know, the design is brilliant, if not intentional. Right? Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, if, if Bitcoin wasn't fee-based, it was entire infl entirely inflationary, um, mining reward, there'd be no censorship resistance. 
because every miner makes the same money, whether they're censoring or not. There's no reason for them to take the black market transactions. <clears throat> so if, if Bitcoin was uh, proof of, there's only two types of proof. There's proof of stake or proof of what's on the chain. And there's proof of something outside the chain, which reduces to work. Everything reduces to work that you could introduce. So if Bitcoin was not proof of work based, if it was proof of stake based, then it would also be um, not censorship resistant because once the censor gets to 50% or whatever stake he needs, he, it's done, right? There's no, and he can do that without anybody knowing. Um, you can't get them out. There's no way to get them out. With proof of work, you can always add more energy. You know, it, it, there's an unlimited amount that can be added externally. So, and decentralizability, which is the, you know, the, the third principle that defines Bitcoin. Bitcoin is um, identity free. It can operate at low scale. People can hide. They can spread the risk by be, being able to do that. They can add energy in secret, right? Privately, and they can raise their fees privately, right? So you can, you can, you have a securable system because of those three principles that Satoshi laid out. Um, and they're all perfectly economically rational, but none of them allow you to prove that you can overpower the sensor. That's an economic choice that people have to make collectively, right? If the, if the market will bear the cost of the tax, tax driven censorship, um, then they'll have the money. If they won't, then they won't. So in your view, it comes to essentially people paying enough on a fee market uh, to get their transaction confirmed. Yeah, when it's when it's um, being censored, whether they know it or not, they may have no idea they're being censored. Nobody may know. And you also said, you know, leak. you mentioned leaking knowledge. It doesn't matter if people know or not. You can do it completely openly, right? <laughs> or you can, you can yeah, do true. it overtly. Um, yeah, it's, it, that's not really a factor in the security model. Yeah, sure. Okay, look... Um, I think we're pretty much about out of time, but maybe if you just got any closing thoughts on, you know, what what you're um, kind of looking forward to with Bitcoin over the next few years. Well, you did ask me a question that I didn't answer. It's kind of along those lines. Um, you you said, well, why would he work on this thing if you know thinks thinks it can't? Work, <laughs> yeah, right? right. But I just described to you how it works, and I think it's brilliant. And but I accept what I know about Bitcoin, right? What I think I can prove. I'm not a cheerleader. I don't go out and tell people it's this, that, you know, you know, it's, it's immutable. It's absolutely secure. You know, it's going to go up forever in value because there's a limited supply, which is, is a nonsensical statement. People ignore all kinds of facts about Bitcoin, even when they're pointed out because they want it to succeed, which is understandable. I want it to succeed, but it's not going to succeed based on lies or, you know, untruths, I should say. So um, it's going to succeed based on the fact that, I mean, it's not like other people, you know, the state, for example, doesn't know these things, right? Or they're stupid or incompetent. Those are some of the worst arguments. I was, you know, I was employed by the U.S. government for 10 years and very capable people um, and very smart. They're in a bureaucracy, which can be very stupid. But, um, you know, when they want to get something done, they can, they can get it done. And certainly building some minds is not a hard task. So um, I, I want a system, uh, I understand that the system is a black market money, no matter how it operates today, it's designed to operate without state permission. It's not, it doesn't, re it's permissionless, right? That's the term we use. Well, that by definition means it's a black market money. It operates without permission. So I'm willing to accept that and to say like, ultimately Bitcoin's destiny is to be a black market money, at least from some segment of this states that care in the world. Um, and I'm okay with that because the black market is the free market, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. people transacting freely and voluntarily, not, not being, co you know, uh, compelled uh, to do things. So I believe in non-aggression. Uh, therefore, I'm an anarchist. I believe in free markets and therefore black markets. And I believe in Bitcoin as a very effective tool to save people money, um, ultimately, um, when transacting uh, by eliminating state control or reducing state control over the over the money, um, so I'm very positive about it. But my my vision is not the same as you know anybody that's operating a big white market business, right? Um, right. And it's not it's not unique. I mean, Amir and I had this conversation five years ago, and it would be exactly what he said. Uh, he just had more foresight, I think, than I did even at the time. Um, 
So that's uh, so I'm very positive, but I'm positive in a different way, and I want people to understand, not uh, cheerlead, right? Or right. follow. Blindly. Okay. Well, yeah, very interesting thoughts, Eric. Um, so, look, obviously, I'll put the notes, uh, put the links in the show notes. But uh, just for anyone who, you know, where can the listeners find you? Um, Twitter, evoskul, E-V-O-S-K-U-I-L. Um, GitHub, same, same, pretty much evoskul anywhere. Um, LinkedIn, GitHub, my full bio is on LinkedIn. Um, my all my all my uh, Libitcoin work is in uh, and every, and a lot of other people's too in Libit in Libitcoin repo. Uh, and GitHub, and uh, my writings are there in the Libitcoin system uh, repos wiki. Um, Libitcoin.org is uh, is usually up, but not always. It's a, it's a landing page for Libitcoin. Um, yeah, but that's uh, that's about enough, I guess. Okay, great. Well, look, thanks very much again for coming on the show today, Eric. Yeah, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So there you go. I hope you guys found that interesting. I think, obviously, Eric and I disagree on this whole aspect of whether it will be a full reserve future versus a more, what we might term a fractional reserve free market banking future. I think where the Austrians sort of differ on that point is that the free market fractional reserve types believe that the reserve ratio might settle much, much lower, maybe, who, who knows, 5% or whatever, whereas those of us more on the full reserve side believe that it's going to be at or very near 100%. And, you know, from the full reserve side, it's more like you, this fractional reserve position is only sustainable in a world with central banking, legal tender laws, etc., whereas it seems the fractional reserve side take a slightly different view. In any case, let me know your thoughts, and perhaps I could have articulated some of the concerns a little bit better, so definitely let me know your thoughts there. Thanks, guys, and I'll chat to you soon. Bye.